0: Welcome to episode 94. Today, Alex Chevron vent joins us to talk about her book called, Equity-Centered, Trauma-Informed Education. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful more and more of us are understanding trauma-informed education. I do not have the slightest idea of how to support students who have been through trauma, such as violence and natural disasters. Alex adds another look at trauma, the one produced by schools as a result of inequitable learning experiences. Many of us are realizing that schools can be an oppressive place for minoritized students. In this episode, she'll provide a framework for being proactive in and planning for equity-centered trauma-informed education. Moreover, she implores us to be proactive in not participating in a system of oppression so that we do not inflict trauma on our students. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have consultant and author Alex Chevron-Venet on the
1: podcast. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well,
0: I was uh, introduced to your book by the one and only Dr. Katie Topple, and she hosts and she (laughs) organizes a book club for multilinguals. And when she basically says, I'm reading this, you should read it we all go and run to the book and read it. (laughs) And um, I haven't yet read your book and I'm so excited to uh, learn about and read about your book. So before we get there, can I ask um, what has been your experience? Let me pause my guess. Can you tell us a story that really has informed uh, your book?
1: Oh, um, a lot of my book is really grows out of my experience teaching at an alternative school and also my experience teaching at the community college level which in some ways i feel like is the alternative school of higher education um and so there's a ton of stories in the book but really i think a lot about one particular student who just really had a hard time trusting school and trusting teachers And uh, would always kind of go back to this experience he had when he was in third grade or something where he was hiding under a table or something like that. And the principal got called in and pulled him out from under the table. And he really carried that moment with him throughout his life. And even though he had a lot of other stuff going on, that was something he would just always come back to as kind of proof that I can't trust teachers, school isn't a safe place. And I think I think about that a lot because, you know, I've been in this field of trauma-informed education for a while and I read all the things about, it. I talk to all the people about it. And most of the time, people are talking about trauma that happens at home. But the reality is school can be a really traumatic place for some students. And I think we have to talk about that more because. We can do something about that. We can make schools not be traumatic. Um, and you know, similarly, I work with a lot of multilingual learners in the community college, and they also often have stories about teachers who are really unsupportive or classmates who you know, bullied them. And, and you know, I think we have to address all those traumas that can happen inside the school.
0: Right. you said that school can be traumatizing for kids. Why is that?
1: Well, trauma is, you know, people use the word trauma a lot these days, and so it it might help to define it. And trauma really is when there is a a stress that is so intense that it starts to alter uh, your mind and body and soul, basically, um, would be a really simple way of putting it. And trauma can be caused by Big events like some people think about, okay, a natural disaster or a surviving war or, you know, different things like that. But also, trauma can be caused by a persistent, stressful environment where someone is constantly feeling threatened. And so, school can be traumatizing because there can be that constant, stressful environment where kids just don't feel safe, where they feel like they're constantly under attack. Or that they are being threatened and when that stress becomes overwhelming which usually happens when we don't have a support system um, that can become trauma and really have lasting impact on people
0: uh, you've definitely talked about a, a huge topic in our field dr stephen krashen talked about the effective filter and he said when this is a, this is connected to language acquisition when he said when kids are stressed out they're going to use all the mental capacity to uh, not feel stressed. So they're not going to use their mental capacities to comprehend language, and they're not going to use their mental capacities to communicate. So you're you're speaking right to the heart of what we do. So thank you for that. You talked about um, support system, we'll get there in a second. So you just informed, you just explained what trauma-informed means. Can you talk about equity-centered?
1: Yes. So the other piece that I sometimes see in the trauma-informed world, you know, one piece is, like I said, people will kind of focus a lot on this idea that trauma happens outside school. I say we have to look at it within school. So the other piece that doesn't get talked about as much is the idea that equity and trauma-informed practices really have to work together, You know, sometimes I will pick up a book on trauma informed education and it doesn't talk about race, gender. It doesn't talk about um, kids who are LGBTQ uh, being bullied and harassed inside of school. It doesn't talk about religious discrimination. And I kind of go, well, how can we talk about trauma without talking about all that stuff? Because marginalization can cause a lot of trauma. And so, combining those together into equity-centered trauma-informed education is to really just hold people accountable that when we talk about trauma, it's not just this thing that it happens in some kids' houses or it happens, you know, in their life outside. It's happening because of some of the things that we allow in schools. Like if we aren't addressing equity issues then we could be allowing trauma to really thrive inside the school.
0: If school is a system, what are the systems that can cause kids to feel stressful, or can cause can be traumatizing, and can uh, be a lack of equity? Mm.
1: There's so many systems in schools that can cause inequity and cause trauma. I mean, one really obvious one is discipline, Um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of research that shows that uh, teachers tend to use harsher discipline on students of color, students identified for disabilities, multilingual learners, you know, basically any student um, who is not white, (laughs) right, white and neurotypical and all that stuff can get more harshly disciplined. And And then in that discipline process, students can be isolated, they can be physically restrained, they can be referred to police and law enforcement, and all of those things can be deeply traumatizing for kids. On the other hand, you can have a school where that system is really based in something like restorative justice, where it's very relational and it's not about compliance, it's about community. And the adults are really focused on supporting kids instead of punishing kids. And so my book really looks at encouraging educators to make their systems caring and non-traumatizing, as opposed to kind of doing things in ways that are going to perpetuate that harm.
0: I I feel like this is teaching therapy for me because... (laughs) (laughs) When I first started teaching I used to work for Teach for America and so I was uh, hired as part of a core member and I clearly remember a person during one of the workshops saying uh, giving advice of like you must give a kid a detention by the end of today and I was like at that time I was like okay the person was trying to say "Uh, you want to keep the kids accountable you don't want to baby them you must give you must say if you do this then you'll get a detention and then I was like Looking back, I'm like, oh, my goodness, (laughs) that's so punitive because we know I was listening to another podcast and we talked about when kids, particularly minority kids, are um, suspended from school, they have a high likelihood of being arrested. They have a Mm -hmm. high likelihood of doing other things that will cause them to be in trouble. Right. And so we are we're we're saying it's that link between detention, suspension, to incarceration is so closely tied. And so it's a it's very traumatic as well. Mm-hmm.
1: And it can be a cycle, too, because you have kids that maybe already have experienced trauma. And so they're just trying to get through the school day. And sometimes that means they're not going to follow all the different rules, or they might walk out of class or just do something that might bother a teacher who isn't very informed. And so then that teacher says, okay, you have a detention, you have a suspension. And what you're doing is communicating to that kid, get out of our community. You know, you don't belong in here. And that's just exactly the opposite message that you want to send to a kid because all the research on trauma says that the thing that helps is being in relationships with other people, being cared for, being connected and so, our traditional ways of doing discipline are just exactly the opposite.
0: Right, it separates you from community. I think that mm-hmm. there's um, there's an uh, there's a tribe in Africa that uh, restores people this way. When someone has there's a when there's a transgression, they all bring everyone to the the center of the village, and everyone makes a circle, and the person in the middle stays in the middle. The person who did the transgression. And then they go around in a circle and they say, what have you done that was positive before? Right? Mm. So this practice is reminding them of like, you are not this person, you are not this action, remember all the things that you've done for the community. And so that's the restorative thing. It's not punishing mm-hmm. people. It's saying, wait, you have actions. And there's sometimes they're appropriate, sometimes they're not. But we know that you have appropriate actions. Mm-hmm. You're capable of that.
1: Exactly. You, uh, you've,
0: One of my questions is, why is trauma a lens and not a label?
1: So I say that trauma is a lens and not a label because sometimes when schools learn about trauma, they go, okay, well, let's figure out which kids have had trauma and we'll give them special services or something like that. But really, you can't ever know who's experienced trauma because it's it's very personal, it's very subjective. And so if you are trying to label kids, you're always going to mislabel some kids and you're going to miss other kids altogether. And so instead, I invite teachers to look at how could we make the whole school trauma informed basically by just thinking through what are the best ways we could prevent trauma, address trauma, be responsive, as opposed to just picking and choosing certain kids? Because you'll always miss somebody if you try to do that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the way we see instead of labeling kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, uh, what are the four proactive priorities for decision making?
1: So this is one of those ways that you can make trauma-informed education universal and use it as a lens. And what I encourage teachers to do is think through these four questions. How can I make my learning space predictable? How can I be flexible with my students? How can I foster connections and relationships? And how can I foster empowerment and agency? And basically those four things, predictability, flexibility, connection, empowerment, those come out of all of the research on trauma, the research on trauma and learning, and basically what helps. And you'll see a lot of people in trauma-informed education say um, we have to focus on safety as the priority. And I kind of take a little bit of a different tack and say that these four priorities are part of what make people feel safe because safety is a really big term. It's, and that's also very subjective, right? Somewhere that I feel safe, you might not feel safe and vice versa, but some things that generally help people feel safe are things are predictable. People are being flexible with them. They feel connected in a relationship and they feel they have power and agency over their own lives. And so what I encourage educators to do is plan with those things in mind. And so, um, they're kind of proactively infusing that trauma awareness into their planning,
0: right? And it's it seems like that framework can go back to the lens that mm-hmm. you talk exactly. about. Exactly. Right? Can um, how can we rethink
1: our role as
0: educators?
1: So sometimes when people learn about trauma-informed education, they can kind of unintentionally shift into this mindset that oh, those kids who have trauma, oh, those poor kids, I feel so bad for them. I have to save them. I'm going to be the teacher who's going to rescue them from their terrible lives, <laughs> you know, and and I don't think anybody says that out loud like that. But I it's this sort of unintentional thing where you do want to help, right? And you feel bad that they might have experienced trauma. But what can happen is it just bleeds into this you know, savior mentality, essentially. And when you do that, it is taking away that agency from students and not giving them their own humanity or focusing on their strengths. And so I really encourage teachers to think of themselves as being supporters and kind of walking alongside students as opposed to I'm going to pick you up out of your terrible life and rescue you. You have to really interrogate um, why am I judging their life that way? Nobody's life is all good or all bad. We all have complexities. So how could I see the strengths and the positive things for this student? Right.
0: And outfield, we call that probesito symptom, uh, syndrome, mm-hmm. where we say, oh, probesito, this is, they have such a troubled life. Right? And they, there was a, a Twitter post. Someone had a, a multilingual and you could see them like with like ragged clothes. And you're like, that's not all multilinguals, and mm-hmm. like, w- what way are we seeing kids, right? And it, there's definitely um, that, that savior mentality. But I, I see it as like a, a, a knight on a white horse right? mm-hmm. riding in. Exactly. Right. And, and then that's, that goes back to the lack of agency. part. Mm-hmm. If you're saving someone, if you're in the position of trying to save someone, then you're taking away the, the agency exactly i i feel like i would love to know more about the, those four decision making questions that you have could you flush them out just a little bit more and talk a little bit sure what would that look like in a
1: class i guess or a school system sure so you know there's all kinds of ways you can implement these but let's say that you are basically just planning um you know your first couple of weeks of school and you're thinking of setting your routines and getting to know your class. So when you think about uh, predictability, that's just the things that teachers already do, like routines and, and having, you know, clear expectations and, and making sure students know what's coming. For people who are experiencing trauma, this is helpful because like we talked about, when you're um, experiencing a great deal of stress, your brain is really busy deciding if it's danger around you and so the more that things feel predictable and transparent the less energy you have to spend wondering you know where do I go what do I you know I almost think about if you're going through an airport um, and you're you know trying to look for the sign that's going to show you where your gate is and the gate is moving all around right you're so stressed you don't even know where you're going if you have a really nice map and there are signs that are translated in all your languages and stuff you can go okay i know where i'm going i'm going to stop and get a smoothie on the way <laughs> you know so that predictability but then i tell people predictability doesn't mean being rigid so that's where the flexibility comes in because when you're going through trauma or stress or just a hard time you need people to be flexible with you you know there are times when you're not going to necessarily get everything done, or you need a break, or you need to do something in a different way. And so just having that flexibility and not getting too just set in your ways. Then there's that connection piece, because when we feel like we can trust and be connected to the people around us, uh, that is super important. And so I encourage teachers to think about how can my students be more connected as a result of anything we do in this class? So um, if we're practicing speaking, let's not just like read sentences out of the textbook, let's actually talk and get to know each other. Um, If we are, you know, practicing writing, who could we write to inside or outside of the school that would build a relationship maybe with community elders or something like that? and then the final one is that empowerment so that's about having that agency and choice because if someone else is trying to control us that doesn't usually feel very safe or good to people and so giving students as much choice and voice as possible Um, and you know sometimes teachers struggle with this because they go well i have this curriculum or I have this way I'm supposed to do things, but just finding, are there any little ways within that? And also really just coming back to honoring a person's humanity. You know, when you see them as a whole person with their own choices and self-determination, then that builds their sense of agency.
0: Right, and teachers can automatically do that with differentiation, right? They don't have to say, here are 30 different lesson plans. It's saying, here are three options for your summative. Which one do you wanna do? And then- Exactly. That connects to the connection part. You can say, okay, of these three types of summatives, uh, you're gonna pick the topic that you wanna write about. For example, let's just say, I'm going to look at my grade eight Renaissance unit, and we're talking about invention. So we moved away from studying dead white Italians mm-hmm. and glorifying them and saying, what do they do? Uh, we're now moving back into, we're learning about the Renaissance, but we're saying the concept of, is about innovation and invention. Now we're gonna say in your summative, we want you to create, we want you to research uh, an invention, an inventor, or innovation that came from your country,
1: mm.
0: right? And so there's that mm-hmm. connection part. There's that part where they're being mirrored positively their culture is being mirrored positively, but then they also have a choice, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, I guess you're speaking about what Larry Falazzo was talking about, his framework for motivation, mm-hmm.
1: right?
0: And you're also uh, talking about SEL in so many ways, social yes. learning, and then you're also including uh, culturally sustaining pedagogy, or mm-hmm. culturally relevant pedagogy, where students are, their cultural connections are sustained maintained and expanded Mm on yeah so
1: exactly and and my hope is that when teachers hear about these four priorities they're recognizing oh this isn't something new that i have to do this is what i'm already doing and then i also encourage teachers to go through and reflect on which of those areas they have strengths and weaknesses in i know for myself I'm really good at flexibility, but sometimes that means that my classes aren't that predictable, because I'm always trying to adjust and change things up. And so because I know that then I go and when I'm planning class, I go, okay, I have to remember, I need to keep this predictable, I told them we were going to do this, I have to still do that. So I think that reflection piece is really important.
0: Right. I, I appreciate these four priorities, because it's a lens which we can examine our practice, our examine our, uh, the way we design lessons and the way we teach our lessons. So it's really helpful. These are like little check marks to say, hey, are we providing some flexibility? Is there a way that we can have connection? Are we creating agency somehow? And are we creating a place where kids feel comfortable? Exactly. What are the mindsets that we need to move away from? Do you think?
1: So this connects back to our discussion about the savior mentality and and feeling bad for kids or things like that. Um, So I encourage teachers really to move away from that idea of I'm gonna do it all myself and really look at how can I do this collectively. And I mean, it really can, like you just mentioned, this connects to so many other pieces that teachers may be working on like culturally sustaining pedagogy, SEL. If you look into those things, you're also going to read about don't do it by yourself, work with your colleagues, recognize that you are part of a lot of people in a student's life. You know, the school shouldn't be operating as an island apart from the community. And so we have to just let go of that idea that the teacher is a hero and is going to save everything um, and really work communally. Um, And really, you know, mindset shifts as well. There's all kinds of them inside of trauma-informed education, like moving away from a punitive mindset into a restorative one that we talked about. And so I think, again, that reflection piece is really important to just constantly be looking at, you know, what are my beliefs about teaching and how are those influencing my practice? And then layer onto that, what do I know about what students with trauma need? What do I know about the students in my school and what they need and how could I shift how I'm thinking about things? Right.
0: It starts with knowing your kids. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying. Exactly. That's, yes. That's a big part of our practice. You've now mentioned restorative practice three times. So that means <laughs> <laughs> that we must visit and talk about. I know that that's a whole different podcast and a series of podcasts. <laughs> but can you talk about, in a nutshell, restorative practice and how teach the, the mindset, the principle, and a strategy that teachers can use with restorative uh, practice?
1: Yeah, so restorative practices is basically the idea that you shift away from the the focus on there are rules and when you break a rule there's consequences and instead you look at there are relationships and when you harm someone else you try to make it right. And so it's really a shift away from, you know, the rules to people. So you're focusing on those relationships. So it's very in line with trauma informed education and in a lot of ways i think they really have to go together but you can you know there are places that are looking at restorative practices that wouldn't necessarily call themselves trauma informed and vice versa and so it's another one of those intersections that like you said we could talk about for a long time but it's really rich to dig into (laughs) yeah i'm
0: thinking about yesterday so here's a personal story uh, my niece was eating, and this applies to restorative practice, right? So my <laughs> niece was eating lunch and with her little friends, on, uh, so they're just eating lunch. And I noticed that they, we were trying to get her to eat quickly because we're about to go to the park, and she gets really distracted by sitting with her friend. Her friends are almost finished, and we've already talked to her. And so I said, all right, uh, niece, please go sit at our adult table, and you're going to eat with us. And then when she sat there, I said, the reason we're not punishing you, we're trying to give you focus. So mm-hmm. when you move away from your friends, you're able to focus. So when you're able to focus, you eat more quickly, so that you can go so we can go to the park with so that no one waits for us alone. Mm-hmm. And so she said, she ate and she continued. And I said, like a few minutes later, I talked to her again, she's at the table. And I said, So if you were to go back to sit with your friends again, what will you do? And she said, Well, I'm going to focus by eating. And I said, great, here's one strategy that you could use. Make sure that you eat when you eat, uh, eat and don't look at the food instead of t- turning and talk to your friends before you eat. <laughs> right? And I said, is that something you can do? She said, oh yeah, okay. And then she went back to sit with her friends and she continued to eat and it was much more focused. And I think, I don't know, is that restorative practice?
1: Yeah, I think so because you're telling her that it's not you know, the reason that you're trying to have her finish her lunch isn't because, you know, the, you. it's not just because you said we're going to the park at this time, but because, hey, you're one person in this big group of family and friends. And when you eat slower, it means the rest of us are waiting for you and we all want to go have a fun time together so it's that relational piece where you're saying you're a part of a community here's how you're impacting the community and you you gave her the strategy you gave her the support so you know that kind of restorative interactions and i think a lot of people are really um comfortable doing stuff like that when it's just with a person or or a family member Um, and so the trick is figuring out how do i make sure that that can happen at school when everybody is stressed out and there's a lot of kids um, and there I mean, there's a lot of wonderful resources about restorative practices. So if anyone wants to get started, there's just so many. Right.
0: Let's talk about uh, the system part, like what are the systems we could do uh, to make. to, To apply the practices that you're sharing.
1: So there's some systems changes that are really big. And I think most teachers don't feel like they have a lot of influence over, for example, um, like high stakes testing and education funding. <laughs> a lot of those big things really need to change. Um, but, you know, teachers can help advocate if they can. Um, but within a school, there's also things like, um, you know, the discipline systems, there are policies. So, for example, um, policy on when students are late, are they punished or are they welcome to school? Are there policies on excused, I don't know why I'm thinking about attendance so much, but excused absences. And then there's also systems for the teachers, like are the teachers getting support? Do they have time to talk to each other? Um, are they feeling supported uh, by their leaders? And so what I encourage teachers to do in my, in my book is really think about what is a system in your school that you might have influence over and how could you advocate to shift it so for example if you are on the english department plc professional learning community maybe starting with your curriculum map or your um, policy for graduation requirements or whatever it is and looking at that through that equity and trauma lens and starting from there so really just encouraging people start where you are with with any of those
0: Right. And so now we move from the system to the individual classroom. Your one of your last chapters is how can we change the world from inside our classroom? Yes.
1: Yeah, so in a lot of the books on trauma informed education, you'll see a lot of stuff about, oh, trauma is coming into your classroom. And so you have to respond by, you know doing this learning support or being sensitive regulation activities but there's also a way that your classroom has an influence on the existence of trauma in the world and if that sounds really big it kind of should but the idea is right that as teachers we're helping shape the next generations yes and I think we you know we all connect to that mission and so if you use kind of a trauma lens on it you can go okay well how could I help Through my classroom foster students who will cause less trauma in the world or who will disrupt the things that causes Mm, trauma so things like teaching for social justice teaching advocacy and action teaching students you know even something like comprehensive sex ed where they look at consent and healthy relationships, you're helping students to be people who aren't causing trauma, and who are hopefully creating good in the world. So really just looking at that, you know, that symbiotic relationship.
0: Oh, that's okay. I I can see myself doing that now. Um, So sometimes I will, when there's a conflict in the classroom, and the kids are I use basically do this with my 10th graders or my older kids, I always tell them stories about my own practice. So for example, like I, for example, I'll tell them a story when my boyfriend and I, uh, we would, when we have conflicts, we used to just argue back at each other and we weren't listening, right? Mm-hmm. Until I started the practice of paraphrasing. And I would tell them I was like, Hey, when you have a conflict in the future, this is what I want you to do because my boyfriend and I we do this. So when he said he whatever he says, he goes first, he says, I feel this way, Whatever's happening da, 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 and I and I pair it back and I paraphrase in the most kind mm-hmm. way I can. and I say, I hear that you're saying this, is that right? Right. And I say, is there anything else? And then we keep going back. And so and I notice when I do that, kids listen more than they would listen when I'm talking about the Renaissance, or about mm-hmm. World War Two, it's like so real for them, right. And so we find moments to integrate SEL within our class, because then they'll have those skills that they'll use forever. I guess this is also very connected, for example, all of us has taught online for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I taught my kids and I would share my screens and I would say, I want you to see all my windows, all of them are closed except for one. And I want you to notice my tabs here, I've closed Gmail, so I don't get cheat chat. I've closed all other tabs that distract me. So this is something that really helps me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend that you do it as well. So I guess you're saying, that's how we're changing the world by giving kids, by sharing with kids, developing students skills to regulate and self-manage and self-reflect.
1: Yes, and it, you know, it's that modeling and even just those little moments like, hey, do you see I've closed my tabs? But also, you know, your example made me think about how I think in most classes we do like classroom norms for discussion and we come up with how how could we have a good discussion but we don't always actually connect that to the real world like you did when you're talking about the example of you and your boyfriend and so I think that's a great example of how you can more make it real for students and help them understand that this isn't just about Having a good classroom discussion for a grade, but it's because if you're a caring person in the world, you don't want to harm other people. And so, when you, for example, one of classroom discussion people, uh, one classroom discussion norm people talk about sometimes is that intent is not the same as impact. So, even if you didn't mean to be harmful, you have to believe when someone else says, hey, that hurt my feelings. And so, if you frame that as, this isn't just about our class but hey in the world um if i'm talking to somebody and i didn't mean to offend them but they are offended it's still my responsibility to understand how to make it right so just those little real world connections can be so powerful
0: right and teachers teachers can use this with contact pretty easily for example during the january 2nd january 6 insurrection at the capitol we were learning about world war ii and how hitler came to power And I paused at this moment, I said, and this is, and I always tell my kids, like, history does not repeat, it just rhymes. And Mm. I tell kids that in the future, you will be uh, political, uh, you will be politicians, you'll be business owners, you'll be cabinet members, you'll be doing all these things that are really important in the world. You will have businesses, you'll probably be part of organizations, you'll be on boards. You want to make sure that when people are using power in this way, that this is a red flag. When people are mm-hmm. trying to censor, this is a red flag as well. And so the easy part is I think teachers at the end of the class, they say five minutes. They take say, they say we are learning this now. How can this be applied in the future? We're learning this now. What skills have you developed uh, that you can use for the future? And that's- Exactly,
1: pretty, right? yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so you're talking to an audience of teachers of multilinguals. What have you, can you can you speak to that uh, audience in, in per, the perspective of equity, equity center in trauma-informed education?
1: Yeah, so like I said, when I've worked with multilingual learners, my observation has been that yes, sometimes folks are carrying with them trauma from different areas of life, you know sometimes trauma from experience of being a refugee and different things like that but also we have to really make sure that we're not ignoring the trauma that can happen at school yes. and that for a lot of multilingual learners school is is not a place that feels supportive and it's not a place that feels welcoming and if we are shaming them or even you know i've even had students who have said yeah, my, my teacher, my, my ELL teacher was fine. My school was fine, but I just didn't like being placed in that class. And everybody knew I was in that class. And, and the thing is, right, like not all stress is trauma. So kids are not automatically going to be traumatized by that, but sometimes they are. And, and any increase in stress that we could have prevented, we should pay attention to. And so it's sort of two things at the same time. One is to not slip into that, oh, I feel so bad for all these students, they've had such a hard life. So not to, you know, feel sorry for them and to recognize all the strengths that they're carrying. But then at the same time, also to say, uh, I have to do everything in my power to make sure that we're not causing additional harm through their right. experience in right. school.
0: Right. Someone, I think there was a politician that said, our goal is to do no harm, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so you work with lots of teachers and you present and you share and you go to workshops. When you share this framework, what are teachers' responses? Like what's the th- main theme that they're sa- like they were, how are they responding to this?
1: Um, mostly I think teachers respond pretty well and they, you know, a lot of teachers, understand that there's a lot of trauma in the world, and they feel sometimes like they don't know what to do about it. And so a lot of teachers will feel really empowered, like, okay, this is something I can do. And a lot of teachers also, in this particular lens of equity-centered trauma informed education, they go, oh, good, because I read this other thing about trauma informed education, and it did seem really savory, or it felt too mushy, or it felt too color, you know, it, it didn't talk about race and racism. And that felt weird. So when they see that you can tie them together, equity work and trauma informed work, they go, Oh, this is what I was looking for when I tried to look up trauma informed education. And then of course, there's always people who, uh, you know, push back or say, you know, I think we should focus instead on this. But, you know, I think as long as we're all kind of working toward the same goal of equity and of making our schools more caring places, there's lots of inroads to that work.
0: I feel like we've, we've talked about the trauma part, but I feel like I was remiss by not asking you more about the, the race part of your work. Mm. Can you talk about that, the equity part?
1: Yeah. So to me, the part of including race specifically, but also talking about, you know, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, all the different aspects of identity, gender, um, is just to make sure that we are explicitly naming those things and recognizing how systems of oppression are at fault for trauma and the individual kids are not. So sometimes when you will hear people talk about trauma, they'll go, oh, well, that kid, his family is... You know, his family is on free and they always say free and reduced lunch. They don't say, oh, he's poor, but they say, you know, they'll use their phrases for, oh, they're on free and reduced lunch. They live in the assisted housing, whatever euphemisms they want to (laughs) say. He has so much trauma. Um, His parents don't care that much about education. You know, they'll kind of say these things to have assumptions behind them. But really, that's not the fault of the kid it's not the fault of the family it's the fault of a society that like not to go on too much of a rant but like it's the fault of a society that says we're fine with having a handful of billionaires and letting other people live in poverty right (laughs) like that that's that's the fault and so if we put all the blame on the parents and say oh the parents don't care that's why this kid has so much trauma Um, then we're really doing a disservice and so we have to really center conversations about race and racism homophobia transphobia islamophobia you know we have to center all those conversations so that we're understanding why the harm is happening and also understanding that we're not going to fix the harm by shaming parents or by shaming kids right
0: Right. It, it just, so I wrote down what you said systems of oppressions are at fault and not the teacher, right? And so we, and yet we are part of the system mm-hmm. right, of oppression. And so we have to make sure that we are not a cog in that system, that exactly. we elevate ourselves and say, wait, I'm participating in a system that oppresses kids. For example, this is, it's June 18th, and uh, this week, Florida passed a law where they did not, their, uh, not allowing people to teach about culturally sustaining pedagogy, culturally relevant pedagogy. And that mm-hmm. is part of a system.
1: Exactly. Right? And and there's even smaller examples. Like one example I give in my book is that um, you may have heard sometimes, like a, let's say an elementary school teacher is on the playground and a girl runs up to her and says, oh, Timmy was pulling my hair. And the teacher says, oh, just ignore it. It's just because he likes you. And you might just think that's a small moment, but but sexism and misogyny in our society is built from systems and from these small moments where we tell a girl, oh, it's okay to have somebody hurt you. They just like, you know, like if, if we're feeding those beliefs, then we are doing harm as like you said, a cog in the system. Right. And so we really have to interrogate those things And it's overwhelming sometimes because there's a lot of unlearning that everybody has to do because we're all socialized with a whole variety of harmful beliefs and so i just encourage teachers to be lifelong learners and every time you feel like okay i really okay i've done some learning about gender socialization i feel good on this great move to another topic learn something like right like let's unpack ableism let's unpack you know, what are my beliefs about religion? And just keep that learning going so that you can do better.
0: There is, on the other spectrum, some people are saying, well, this uh, movement of being politically correct stifles communication. How do you address that?
1: <laughs> um, let me think how to say something nicely. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that when people talk about being politically correct, they worry about, oh, can I say, you know, am I able to say something? Can I, can I say what I want to? And I just would have pushed on those people and say, what is it that you want to say that you feel like you can't say? And also whose needs are being centered, right? So if, if I'm upset that I can't, you know, talk about all my biases and say harmful stuff, then I am centering the needs of the, you know, small amount of people who have those beliefs instead of the vast majority of people who just wanna be treated like humans. Right, Right. because they wanna be seen as well,
0: right? Exactly. Just the fact that, uh, for example, like going to prom, like before me, nobody had thought about bringing, allowing same uh, same sex couples to go to prom until I said, I really want to bring a boyfriend a boy to the prom and let me tell you the school board was up in arms they were this was like 20 years ago so they were like uh mm-hmm. we uh we don't know what to do um so anyways they allowed that and that was that was like a, a moment of, of saying that the system is changing because now they're allowing a different rep- representation of just the heteronormative mm-hmm. uh, practices to take place right mm-hmm. So I want to end this podcast with two questions. The first one is, um, what is one strategy? So this is very uh, conceptual and big. So how do
1: we make it? What's the first step for teachers that you recommend? So I'll answer that with a little bit of a non-answer, which is that in my book, I say, anywhere that you start is a good place to start. So truly any place that you feel like you can start making change is a good one. And when I... um, When I do workshops and classes with teachers, sometimes I'll do a project where they're picking a place that they're going to make a change for equity-centered trauma-informed education. And I truly tell them, just pick a place where you have influence and you think you could do it. And so I've had students rewrite a unit. I've had students run a workshop for other teachers. I've had students um, uh, advocate for a better paid time off policy with their union. You know, they do all kinds of different things. And so it's more about understanding the goal and then figuring out where could I make some change toward that goal.
0: Right. It's saying um, not focusing on what you can't do, focusing on what you can do. Exactly. Right. So here's the last question. It's a metaphor. It's a closing activity. It's called traffic light teaching. And so mm. what is red light? What is something you ask teachers to stop doing? Yellow light what is something that you ask teachers to start doing? Kind of like when you see a yellow light, you start to slow down, hopefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you some people might start to speed up. <laughs> and then green light is, uh, what is something you ask teachers to keep on doing?
1: Oh, that's great closing activity. I'm gonna mm-hmm. steal that. <laughs> Please, go ahead. <laughs> um, something I ask teachers to stop doing is Labeling kids by your perception of whether they've experienced trauma or not. Uh, Something I would ask teachers to start doing is to start. Oh, that's such a good one. Um, I would ask teachers to start. Using your paid time off and vacation days <laughs> because if you aren't feeling well, then you can't support your students and take care of them. And it's something I would ask teachers to keep doing is keep making change and learning. And, you know, I just know so many educators who are doing really innovative stuff in their classroom. And even with all these um, really misguided laws that are going on in Florida, Texas, wherever. Oh just, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep pushing for change. Yes.
0: Um, someone said, I think Margaret Mead said, uh, it's small groups of people pushing for change that creates the change, right? I'm
1: yes. The, a small, a sm- I think she says, a small committed group of citizens. Yes.
0: Who are always the ones that are able to make the change, right, against yes. society. And so this is, if we are a little cog, we can still change it. it it starts with our class. That goes back. Yes, to Yes, exactly. Saying. And I think the first step is knowing more. And your book is helping people know more and think differently. Because now I think differently. I used to think trauma informed is like, oh, poor kids coming from <laughs> war torn countries, oh, poor kids coming from poverty. But it's like, oh wait, what are what are the things we are doing as a school unintentionally that is causing that trauma and that isolationism and alienation as well. So Alex, thank you again for spending the time and for your generosity of uh, enlightening our understanding. Thank you so much for having me on. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work. And I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I really appreciate the four questions that Alex offer to help us reflect on if we're inflicting school-based trauma. These questions are 1. How can I make my learning space predictable? 2. How can I be flexible? 3. How can I foster connection and relationships? And 4. How can I foster agency? Notice how this framework of questions does not require us to teach with another program. We just have to design instruction to prevent and address school-based trauma. There is a lot of truth to Alex's thesis that schools can unintentionally produce trauma. No teachers want to be the reason why students leave schools being traumatized. So let's see our instruction through these four questions to prevent school-born trauma. In the next episode, we'll meet with Dr. Goldie Muhammad. She'll share with us her book called Cultivating Genius, an equity framework for culturally and historically responsive instruction. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.